Hello guys and a warm welcome to this week's episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, episode number 24 and the final episode this series before I take a short couple of weeks break and come back brighter and raring to go again with season 2. As ever I'm Paul, the host and True Crime Enthusiast of the title and I thank you guys for joining me today. First timers and old timers alike, it means the world as always guys. Big thanks as ever to my newest Patreon supporter this week, that's Shadira Monsanto. It's much appreciated Shadira, and I hope you enjoy the bonus content and the things that will be heading your way very soon. I'd also like to remind that if anybody has any ideas for a case that they think is a suitable one for an episode of the show, then please get in touch. You can mail me or give me a nod on social media, you know where to find me by now. I'm excited as well to say that some more listeners have got in touch with me since the last listener written episode we did a few weeks ago and there are some great cases that I've received already plus a couple I know listeners are writing up at the moment that will become episodes of the show next season so I look forward to sharing them with you as well. So I hope everybody is good this week, the weather is turning, spring is on its way, I hope, I'm so sick of the cold weather right now. Hats off to you guys who are used to the cold, Uh, I don't know how you do it, I really don't. So it's about this time each week on the podcast that I recommend a blog that I've read or a podcast that I've enjoyed. And this week I'm going to do something just a little bit different, which I hope will be a feature of the episodes from next series onwards as a regular thing. And this week I'm going to hand you over to the promo of the show and let the hosts themselves explain what they're all about. And this week is Men's Rear which is an absolutely fantastic true crime podcast. have recommended it before, and I'll just leave it to Sinead to explain what it's all about. Mens rea is the legal principle of intent that must be proved in a number of crimes, such as murder. It means literally, the guilty mind. The Mens Rea podcast explores the most notorious crimes from Ireland and the UK, and the court cases that followed. Every fortnight, a new case is discussed. So if you like hard-hitting, in-depth true crime podcasts, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from and subscribe to the Mens Rea podcast today. How about that? Absolutely brilliant or what, eh? Go and check it out, Men's Rear. Fantastic. I'm sure you'll all enjoy. So what's in store for the series finale of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast? While the name of Peter Sutcliffe will almost be a household name amongst those with an interest in crime and the macabre, and there'll be scant few who do not know the terror that the Yorkshire Ripper brought to the country during the 1970s and early 1980s, when he was finally caught just two days into the new year in January 1981, his arrest ended one of the most high-profile, horrific and prolific killing sprees in British criminal history. Now I know what you're thinking, it's not the Yorkshire Ripper this week. Coverage of Sutcliffe's arrest and revelations about his life and confessions dominated the British press at the time he was caught, and because they dominated it, it meant that another killer who was put away for his crimes just 18 days after Sutcliffe's arrest went largely unnoticed. It's a worthy case to recount, for the person in question is one of the most unique figures in British criminal history. He's arguably more prolific a killer than Sutcliffe, at least of course in known victims, and a killer that too struck in Yorkshire. 
Please be advised that this week's episode contains descriptions of crimes that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, as well as explicit language, so discretion is advised. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the final time this series as we look back at the case of the Hull Arsonist. The city of Kingston-upon-Hull, or Hull as it's commonly shortened to, is a city in the East Riding of Yorkshire. Yes, for the third week we're in Yorkshire on the podcast, it's just how it's fallen by chance, guys. It's a city that was founded late in the 12th century and for many years following the Second World War, it went through a period of post-industrial decline. It was classed as a deprived area and one with large unemployment, high crime rates and poor housing. Now I don't know how true this is, I've never been to Hull in my life and of course I'm not a time traveller. However it was once perceived, it was the UK City of Culture in 2017 anyway so it can't be like Robocop in 1987 can it? Hull is also where Del Boy had to get a boat to Amsterdam from in a memorable episode of Only Fools and Horses and notable people from Hull include the first person to fly solo from England to Australia, Amy Johnson a member of my favourite comedy group, The League of Gentlemen, Reese Shearsmith, and capital D himself, the legendary bullseye commentator, Tony Green. There is, however, another notable person from Hull, a more infamous one, and his exploits are told in this week's episode. The note received through the door read the following. It's read as it's spelt and the grammar. A family of fucking rubbish, we all hate you. You should all live on an island, Devil's Island. But I'm not kidding, but I promised you a bomb and by hell I'm not kidding. Why don't you just flip while you've got the chance? If we can't get you out normally, then we'll bastard well bomb you out, and that's too good for you. The aforementioned threat was a handwritten warning scrawled in biro on a piece of cardboard taken from a cornflakes packet, and it summed up how by late November 1979, the name Hasty was felt about by the residents of Selby Street, which is about half a mile west of the city centre of Hull. The Hasty family lived at number 12 and consisted of parents Tommy and Edith Hasty and their seven children, four sons and three daughters. Tommy Hasty was a habitual criminal with a long criminal record, and the entire Hasty family seemed destined to follow in the same vein, with the Hasty boys particularly being involved in bullying, vandalism, and theft, and having many run ins with the neighbours throughout the 1970s. They were commonly known as a problem family throughout the local area, and as well as being well known to police, they were feared and detested in equal measure by the community in which they lived, as is evident by the anonymous letter that was received by the family in late November 1979. I mean, you don't get threats through the door if you're the Waltons, so that kind of gives you the idea of what they were like. By the beginning of December 1979, Tommy Hasty was in the midst of serving his latest prison sentence, this time for committing burglary at a local sports club, so 34-year-old Edith Hasty and the rest of the children were home alone. On the night of 4th of December 1979, all of the Hasty daughters were having a sleepover and were staying with nearby relatives leaving just Edith and the four boys, Charlie age 15, Paul age 12, Thomas age 9 and Peter age 8 in the house alone. It was just approaching midnight and the entire family were asleep, so they weren't aware that someone had been watching the house for a while from the shadows of a nearby concrete flyover. They didn't hear when the same someone crept up to the front of the house 
and they equally didn't hear when the person poured an accelerant, paraffin, over the porch and through the letterbox, and then set it alight with matches. When the flames had taken hold, the person went back to the shadows to watch what they'd created. Edith Hasty was later to claim that for some reason she awoke with a start, and smelling smoke, headed out onto the landing of the house to investigate. She screamed as she saw flames shooting up the stairs, and went immediately to awaken the children to get them to safety. Fifteen-year-old Charlie was the first to awaken, and he went immediately to get his nine-year-old brother Thomas, who suffered muscular dystrophy and had only limited mobility. He managed to get Thomas to safety out of an upstairs window, then followed by Edith. Charlie then attempted to get his brothers Paul and Peter out of the bedroom that all three had shared, but the fire was ultimately too fierce, and all three were soon trapped. The house was very soon an inferno, and although Edith and Thomas had managed to get out of the blaze to safety, the fire was ultimately to claim the lives of Charlie, Paul and Peter Hasty. All three boys were to suffer horrific burns over 75-80% to 80% of their bodies in the fire, and although the badly injured children were rushed to the specialist burns unit at the Pinderfields Hospital in Wakefield, all were to die of their injuries over the following few days. By this time, a murder investigation was well underway. Police had been summoned to the fire and a murder investigation had begun when fire service investigators at the scene were able to determine almost instantly that the fire that had claimed the lives of the Hasty Boys had not been an accident. In fact, it was obvious that it had been deliberately set. There were several spent matches found on the porch and an overwhelming smell of paraffin still lingered at the scene even then. A short distance down the path, a trail of paraffin led to a pool nearby where someone had set a can down. The imprint of it was clear where it had pooled around it. Who would have a grudge enough to deliberately set fire to a house knowing that a family with seven children would be trapped inside and possibly burned to death? That's some serious grudge that isn't it and someone with so strong a motive would very likely stand out and be known straight away. But the resulting murder investigation, led by Detective Superintendent Ronald Sager, faced an uphill battle from the start. The Hasty family, as I've said, were hated and feared by the majority of people in the area, and there seemed to be no shortage of suspects as to who could have wished them harm. Ronald Sager was to comment at the time, Never before have I encountered such hatred and dislike for a family. Police focused at first upon the theory that the author of the Devil's Island note that had been put through the Hasty's door just a short time before the fire had made good on their threat against the family, and as a result, handwriting samples of the passage were taken from hundreds of people living in the area. A match for the handwriting was quickly found, but the author of the threat was ultimately ruled out as a suspect almost immediately. The author of the threat was actually identified as a frail old lady who lived nearby to the family and one who'd been constantly terrorised and had property damaged by the hasty boys and pushed to her absolute limit, she thought that writing a letter filled with swear words, and I quote, would be the only type of language they would understand. She'd used cardboard taken from a cornflakes packet to save on the cost of forking out for a stamp, not even deeming the family worthy of even that. By all accounts, this is a church-going lady, so to be pushed to do something as far away from church-going as to post anonymous threatening letters through a door shows just the regard that the Hasty family had in the area. 
Tommy Hasty was granted an early release from his prison sentence on compassionate grounds following the deaths of the three boys, and together with Edith and the surviving Hasty children, led a procession down Selby Street, right past their now boarded up former home, when the funeral of the three Hasty children took place on the 4th of January 1980. Although there were many onlookers to the procession, there was a distinct lack of mourners and a very apparent lack of public sympathy for what had happened. It seemed that the local impression was, however extreme this may be, that the family had only got what had been deserved, which is a bit harsh. I mean, nobody deserves that, do they? The story and subsequent investigation had been widely publicised and followed, with the press capitalising, perhaps wrongly, more on the public feeling against the Hasties instead of the horror that had been caused, printing headlines such as Street of Hate and things like that. But this was fanned, however, and local television cameras were there to capture the moment when, during the procession, a hysterical Edith Hastie was to shout in anger to the crowd of onlookers. Which one of you fucking murdering bastards did this? It was one of you. By the time six months had passed since the fire, police inquiries had drawn a blank. Almost every different theory and line of inquiry possible had been explored in the investigation and ultimately ruled out, including the theory that Edith or one of the hasty daughters themselves had possibly started the fire and the possibility also that the real target of the fire was the next-door house, which was credible as the house was a known drug den. But these were investigated and ultimately ruled out. It turned out that the Hasty family had indeed been the intended target. Ronald Sager and his team were under pressure. The inquiry was going nowhere. Manpower on the case needed to be redirected because, after all, crime doesn't wait, and after six months, Sager and his team were left with just one unexplored line of inquiry. Inquiries about the Hasty Boys in the local area had revealed rumours that the eldest boy, Charlie, was involved in the local rent boy scene and was said to have offered sexual favours to local homosexual men in exchange for money. Perhaps the reason behind the horrific fire stemmed from this, had he had a disagreement with someone, or had he perhaps ripped someone off for money, or was he blackmailing someone? When inquiries were made to establish the extent of how true these rumours were, in June 1980, a local 19-year-old labourer who was questioned, named Bruce Lee, confirmed that not only did he know Charlie Hasty, but he had himself been involved in what he classed as indecent sexual behaviour with him, and this confirmed to police that these rumours were indeed true. When he was pressed as to further explain what this meant, Lee replied, you know, mucking about, wanking and that. He was not charged with any offence stemming from these revelations, as Charlie Hasty was after all underage, and he was released. So after learning that the rumours about Charlie Hasty were true, and that he was indeed involved in the rent boy scene, Sega decided to adopt the different tack, he decided to bring in known local homosexuals for questioning and accuse each in turn of setting the Selby Street fire, hoping that the real killer would be amongst them and would break down and confess when it was put to them. This is a desperate strategy, but it was all that Sega had left that he could do. Every other angle had been covered, and he felt sure that this was the avenue of inquiry that would lead him to the killer. The 19th such of these interviewees that police questioned was Bruce Lee, the youth who had admitted sexual behaviour with Charlie, and Sager adopted the questioning technique that may today seem oppressive and that he'd tried and failed with in the interviews up to that point. 
Sega sat in the interview room with Lee and said to him, Bruce, I'll be quite blunt with you. I think that you started that fire at the Hasties family house and that indecency with Charlie is probably the cause of it somehow. To Sega's surprise, Lee replied, I didn't mean to kill them. It transpired that Lee knew the Hasty family well and he claimed that the fire was set, in his own words, to teach Charlie a lesson. One night I'm thinking I'm going to go to Charlie's house and set it on fire, give him a real frightener. Charlie, Lee claimed, had been threatening him and extorting money from him after the pair had indulged in mutual masturbation, with Charlie threatening to go to the police because he was, after all, a minor. Lee also claimed he felt a grudge against the family because he'd constantly asked one of the Hasty daughters, 16-year-old Angie Hasty, to be his girlfriend and had been mocked and refused each time. In fact, he was constantly mocked and ridiculed by the entire Hasty family and was a favourite target for them to bully. So Bruce Lee decided that they wouldn't bully him anymore. On the 4th of December 1979, Lee claimed he'd gone to the Hasty house late at night, watching first from the shadows created by the opposite motorway flyover, as he described, for a good time until it went real quiet. He described in detail approaching the door and pouring a substantial amount of paraffin through the letterbox, then leaving a trail of it to the middle of the path, and then struggling to light the fire with matches. On the third attempt, he managed to ignite a newspaper and pushed it through the letterbox. Then he retreated to the shadows he'd been watching from to watch his handiwork unfold. Lee could give investigators such correct intimate detail of the scene of the fire, where it was sourced from and how it had been ignited, but there was little doubt he was responsible for it. Only the arsonist and investigators themselves knew the exact forensics. So what kind of person and what must occur in a life to set a person on the road to committing such horrific actions? It suggests a disturbed mind, unhappiness, anger and bitterness at the world and someone with a very poor and sad life in general. Bruce Lee had all of these. He was born Peter George Dinsdale in Manchester on the 31st of July 1960, the unwanted child of a prostitute named Doreen and a father that the child was never to meet. Doreen had little if no love whatsoever for the child, cruelly referring to him as the freak because young Peter had been born with epilepsy, a deformed right arm, and congenital spastic hemiplegia in his right limbs. Between the ages of six months and three years old, young Peter was cared for by his maternal grandmother because his mother didn't want him around at all. Even his grandmother tired of him by this time, and the boy spent the rest of his childhood living periodically in various care homes, and for a time, back with his mother and her common-law husband, who Dinsdale got on with reasonably well. When his mother's relationship ended, Dinsdale was again placed back into care. He attended a school that catered for children requiring special education until he was age 16, having what are now classed as learning difficulties, and he left school with no qualifications and an IQ measuring just 68. He was only sporadically employed after leaving school, working in such roles as casual manual labouring, assisting at the local speedway track and at the gate for Hull Kingston Rovers on match days, and he also worked at a local pig farm from time to time. Co-workers at the establishments Lee was employed at remember him as being a sad character, quiet, unassuming and always alone, and one who was often mocked by those who knew him. 
yet he never used to stand up for himself, he would just say nothing and take the abuse. As a result of such a chaotic and sad life, Dinsdale was often penniless, poorly clothed and had few friends. It was whilst living in the various care homes that he was introduced to homosexuality, which he would partake in, and he became involved in the local rent boy scene, where he met Charlie Hasty amongst others. He would often have to resort to sleeping with men just to earn money to eat, but it is possible that this was also as much of a need for affection or attention in whatever form he could get it as it was for money. What I thought most summed up what a tragic figure Lee had become due to his haphazard life was the fact that he was known by all who knew him as Daft Peter and was considered by all who knew him as an odd loner. Odd, but not dangerous. So perhaps in what was an attempt to overcome this, and to maybe what he thought would transform himself somehow, by age 19 he changed his name legally by deed poll to Bruce George Peter Lee in adoration of the Kung Fu star that he idolised after seeing such films as Enter the Dragon. Enter the Dragon, great movie, absolutely one of my favourites. Bullshit Mr. Handman, still must be one of the best quotes ever, love it. So perhaps Dinsdale thought, well you wouldn't mess with Bruce Lee, and this made sense to him, to Dinsdale sharing the name with someone who he saw as an unquestionable symbol of masculinity would help change his life. But this was after all just a name change alone. He was still the same mocked and ridiculed youth, even with a tough guy name, and the impression he gave off to people didn't change, it wasn't as simple as that. Ronald Sager was to describe his first impressions of Lee as follows. He was not a normal young man. He was deformed, his right arm and right leg were deformed. He had a limp, he had a habit of holding his right arm across his chest. He was poorly dressed, he was clearly undernourished, and on first impressions one had to feel sorry for him. Lee admitted to Sega that he had started hundreds of fires over the years and that his first fire had been in 1969 when he was aged just nine. He'd begun with random bonfires, then had progressed to setting fire to a timber yard and had eventually burnt a shopping centre to the ground, causing thousands of pounds worth of damage. Lee told how he enjoyed the thrill of setting fire to things and explained that he favoured paraffin as an accelerant, carried in and concealed in an empty washing-up liquid bottle in his coat. He would break into premises or sometimes just squirt paraffin through any gaps or letterboxes that he could find. He'd then strike a match and retreat to watch his handiwork take fold. He claimed he would travel around either on foot or by pushbike, always armed with his washing-up liquid bottle of paraffin and that something would come over him and he would set fires as he described when I began to feel a tingling in my fingers. Now whenever there's an event such as a fire, a car crash or some other form of incident, there's usually a crowd of onlookers or rubberneckers. I'm sure we've all been stuck in traffic jams before that are slowed even further by people slowing down to have a gawp. We are nosy as people as a trait, I believe. Because he would appear no different from any of the other spectators, Lee was able to hide in plain sight amongst the confusion caused by his fires and he enjoyed being in the crowds of onlookers watching the emergency services dealing with the destruction he'd caused and thinking, I've done that. He admitted to Ronald Sager, I like fires, I do. I like fires. Fire is my master. I am devoted to fire and despise people. Following his confession to being responsible for the hasty fire, Lee was charged with three counts of murder and a count of arson. 
and remanded to whole prison awaiting trial, and that may have been the end of the investigation. But when the local papers reported that a person had been arrested for the Hasty Fire murders and an artist's impression of Lee was published with it, it opened a new chapter in the investigation and the floodgates with it. On the night of the 21st of June 1979, nearly six months before the Hasty Fire, a woman who lived quite near to the family, Rosabelle Fenton, was preparing for bed when through the glass of her front door she saw a figure of a man stood by her front porch. The figure moved away when he became aware that he'd been seen, and she was convinced that it was Daft Peter, who she knew and had actually shouted at earlier that day because he was loitering around on her porch acting suspiciously. Thinking no more about it, Rosabelle went to bed, but she was awakened shortly later by neighbours raising the alarm and shouting, Fire! warning Rosabelle to get to safety as her house was ablaze. Rosabelle immediately went to the bedroom of her seven-year-old daughter to try to get her out of the house to safety, but the fire was too fierce and both mother and daughter had to take shelter in the corner of the sitting room. They were both eventually rescued in time, thankfully, but both Rosabelle and her daughter were badly injured in this fire. Rosabelle was heavily pregnant at the time, and sadly she suffered a miscarriage. She also had to spend 11 months recovering in hospital, having to have plastic surgery. Her daughter suffered from smoke inhalation and minor burns, and it took mother and daughter a long time to regain any semblance of normality following the fire. The cause at the time was blamed on a discarded cigarette dropped by a neighbour who'd been visiting and who had left the house shortly before Rosabelle had gone to bed, but Rosabelle was adamant that she would have seen and noticed this. She remained convinced that the fire had been deliberately set, and more so, she was convinced that it had been set by Daft Peter. It was only a year later when a picture of Bruce Lee appeared in the local press following developments in the Selby Street Fire investigation. Did she recognise both him and Daft Peter as being the same person and voiced her suspicions to the police? Following Rosabelle's report, Ronald Sager visited Lee whilst he was on remand in prison to question him about this fire and when this was put to him, Lee readily confessed to breaking into Rosabelle's house and setting this fire also, saying casually, I just did it. Someone I knew didn't like her and, well, I just did it. So knowing that he was already dealing with a self-confessed pyromaniac, Sega pressed Lee further, asking him if there was the possibility that any of the other fires that he'd started over the years may have caused injury or worse, even death. Sega wasn't expecting any confessions, but what Lee had to say chilled him to the bone and was the start of a tale so shocking that it was to eventually lead to the name Bruce George Peter Lee being ranked in the Guinness Book of Records as one of Britain's worst ever multiple killers. Pausing for a long time, Lee replied, Yes, you are right, I killed a little baby once. There was no emotion, no tears or outbursts after coming out with this. Lee just sat there impassive. Can you imagine seeing someone sat opposite you and just calmly coming out with that? Imagine how chilling and unbelievable that must have been. Bruce Lee seemingly couldn't stop talking once he had admitted this shocking claim, and what he had to say was almost unreal. To admit to such an amount of damage and a love of fire would be shocking enough. Burning the shopping centre to the ground would be enough, let alone the attempted murder of a mother and daughter, and the torching of a family home that had caused the deaths of three children. That's more than enough, isn't it? That's unbelievable. 
But to add to this, Lee admitted that nine of his previous fires over the years had caused fatalities, 26 fatalities in total, when the victims from each were tallied. Unfazed by what he was recounting, Lee began to set out his accounts of the many fires and deaths that he had caused over the years. Apart from the hasty fire, not one of the other fires that he confessed to setting had been classed as arson at the time. They were all thought to have been accidental, which must have raised questions surely. Of course accidental fires do happen, faulty wiring, unattended appliances and misadventure can all cause these. But surely paraffin as an accelerant would be noticed in at least one of these cases, yet apparently all were investigated and classed as accidental. By his own admissions, the first fire set by Lee that was to lead to a fatality was on the 23rd of June 1973, when six-year-old Richard Ellington was suffocated after being overcome by smoke inhalation after Lee had set fire to his family home on Askew Avenue in Hull. Now Lee knew the boy, he attended the same school and they would often be on the same school bus. The rest of the family managed to get to safety upon discovering the fire in the early hours, but the fire prevented them from reaching Richard, and his badly burned body was found by firemen who attended the blaze. It was to be the standard method that Lee would favour and use in his future fires, paraffin in the squirty bottle squirted through the letterbox of the house, yet the cause at the time was thought to have been down to a faulty gas meter. There was no evidence to suggest that Lee had deliberately targeted Richard Allenton either. The age difference between them was such that they wouldn't have likely been friends. It just seemed to have been a house chosen at random. Lee was to say of this murder, When we stopped in bus next morning, they said he's died in a fire during night. I just sat on bus quiet looking out a window and said, Nout, I've kept it secret from everybody for years. He had become a killer at just 12 years old. 72-year-old Bernard Smythe was the next to die, dying in his armchair at home on Glasgow Street on the 12th of October 1973. A recluse who lived in squalor without electricity or heating and who rarely left the house due to the fact he suffered from gangrene in both legs, Mr Smythe was thought to have knocked over a paraffin heater in his sleep and the spilled paraffin had been ignited by a candle that was light in the room whereas Lee had in reality squirted paraffin throughout his front room whilst he slept in the chair and ignited it. Lee claimed he'd been walking the streets all night, and when he felt the self-described familiar tingling in his fingers, he'd entered Mr. Smythe's house through a broken window. He then set the fire and left through the front door, leaving Mr. Smythe to burn to death agonisingly. He would have struggled to flee due to his limited mobility. Again, there's no evidence to suggest that Lee even knew Mr. Smythe, let alone had enough of a grudge against him to leave him to burn to death. Just over two weeks later, on the 27th of October 1973, 34-year-old David Brewer was burned alive after Lee set fire to his house on Maidley Street. Again, this was thought to have been a paraffin heater knocked over, but Lee was to confess his guilt by giving an example that showed his malicious streak. It transpired that he had rowed with Brewer some days previously over some pigeons, which both Lee and David Brewer were enthusiasts about. Brewer had caught Lee loitering about outside his pigeon kit, and a row between the two had ended with Brewer threatening to give Lee a clout. A clout, for people if you don't know that word, is uh, it just means a smack around the head. So Lee was seething about this, and a few days later he broke into Brewer's home late at night, and finding Brewer asleep in the armchair, 
poured paraffin on him and around the room and ignited it. Brewer caught fire and rushed outside screaming, but despite the efforts of neighbours who came to his aid and doctors at the specialist burns unit of Pinderfields Hospital, Brewer died in agony from his injuries nine days later. He clipped my ear and he shouldn't have done that, claimed Lee when he was asked to explain why he'd done this. Some days later as well, Lee returned to the house and wrung the necks of every one of Brewer's pigeons. It was becoming clear that for all the impression that people had of Daft Peter, this was a very, very dangerous young man. It was more than a year later when one of Lee's fires next caused a fatality. A frail, partially blind 82-year-old woman, Elizabeth Rockauer, died in a house fire on Rosamond Street, the cause of which was thought to have been her falling asleep whilst smoking a cigarette in bed. Lee was to say when describing the fire in an example of his indifference to human life, I did see someone lying in a bed, but I didn't know if it was a man or a woman. I didn't wake him up to ask, did I? He admitted that he had entered Mrs. Rockauer's house through the unlocked back door, which she habitually kept open for a cat to come and go. Lee had stalked around the house, gone upstairs, and deliberately squirted accelerant onto the bed where she slept, lit a match, and burned Elizabeth to death. Again, there was no record that Lee even knew her. It was just a house totally chosen at random. The next death was on the 3rd of June 1976, when one-year-old Andrew Edwards died from smoke inhalation after Lee had set fire to his home on Orchard Park. Andrew's great-grandmother, who was looking after the children that evening, managed to get Andrew's two siblings to safety, but she was unable to save him as well. The elder sibling was later blamed for starting the fire accidentally after he confessed to playing with matches, and he carried the guilt for a number of years until Lee was to confess to causing the fire. He admitted that he'd snuck into the house and poured paraffin under the stairs before setting it alight and going outside to watch. Lee followed this death by claiming another child as a victim, setting a fire in the home of the Thacker family on West Dock Avenue on the 2nd of January 1977. Six-month-old Katrina Thacker was asleep in her cot in the living room of the family home, and her mother and siblings were upstairs. Lee entered the home. It transpired later that he knew the family and had again rowed with them some weeks previously, although the full circumstance of the cause of the row is not reported and he started a fire, again using paraffin in the front room. The cause was thought to have been shedded sparks from unburnt fuel having spat on out of the open fireplace. Now I know that this can happen because I have a scar on my finger from where this happened to me and where I was burned many years ago when I was a teeny tiny little enthusiast sat in front of my nana's fire, watching Bagpuss, I remember, I'll never forget it. But in this case... Three years later, Lee was to prove the shedded sparks theory wrong, saying, I just went in through a window one evening. I sprinkled paraffin on some carpet on the couch, in the living room I think it was, and up it went. The little baby died in it, and I killed her. Lee's worst fire, if any of these don't sound horrific enough, followed just three days after this on the 5th of January 1977. Wensley Lodge residential home was a large council-run premises that accommodated elderly men of various ages and of various physical and mental ability. Three miles outside of the area of Hull, where Lee had focused the majority of his fires, and was set away from the road in substantial grounds. Lee claimed that he had cycled the three miles to the area 
to just come along here to do a big house, just ride along any house. And had painstakingly held a can of paraffin on the handlebars of his bicycle as he pedalled. Now that must have been quite difficult to do, but it shows just how hell-bent he was on setting fires by now, and his determination and desire to do so. Lee then claimed he had chosen the big house as it was nice and quiet, then kicked a window in and entered, and had started a fire in the bedroom of one of the residents. He then left and went to watch the fire take hold from outside. An orderly eventually noticed smoke coming from a first floor corridor and raised the alarm, but the fire spread through the first and second floors, trapping many who, due to their physical and mental conditions, were unable to get out to safety. Killed in the fire were as follows. 95-year-old Harold Acaster, 83-year-old Victor Consit, 83-year-old Benjamin Phillips, 82-year-old Arthur Elwood, 82-year-old William Holt, 80-year-old William Carter, 77-year-old Percy Sanderson, 75-year-old John Ryby, 73-year-old William Beals, 73-year-old Leonard Dennett, and 65-year-old Arthur Hardy. Strangely, the cause for this fire was blamed on a blowtorch that a plumber had been using earlier that day in a bedroom directly underneath the room where the fire was found to have started, one that had smouldered on some rags for hours before igniting. Experts found no fault with any of the plumber's equipment and the plumber himself strongly denied any negligence. Yet he was still blamed for being negligent, although it's not reported if any charges were brought against him following this. It was only when Lee confessed three years later was the possibility of arson being the cause raised. Again, whilst confessing to this fire, Lee showed the complete indifference he had to human life. I could hear like old blokes shouting, Don't ask me how I knowed they was old blokes, but they was not women and babies. I heard a man's voice shouting, God help me. It was bloody terrible. I knew that the fire was killing people. I knew as I'd walked along, blokes was dying in the fire. I'd killed people before in my fires, so I wasn't that bothered like. Not that bothered. Eleven people died in this fire. Can you believe the indifference? Lee next killed two people in a fire on the 27th of April 1977. A seven-year-old boy called Mark Jordan and a 13-year-old disabled girl called Deborah Harper. Late at night, he squirted paraffin through the letterbox of the house on Belgrave Terrace, igniting a blaze in the living room. Out of seven people in the house who'd been there that evening, three adults and four children who'd been attending a party, five of them managed to make it out to safety. Brave Mark had gone back in in an attempt to help Deborah escape, but both had tragically been overcome by smoke fumes caused by the fire and died. Mark was later recommended a posthumous bravery award for his heroic attempts to save Deborah. The cause of the fire was thought to have been one of the adults smoking and falling asleep, but again there was little evidence to support this theory. There was certainly no suspicion of the fire having been deliberately caused. Brentwood Villas on Reynoldson Street was the next scene of horror on the 6th of January 1978. 24-year-old Christine Dixon was talking to a neighbour outside and she noticed smoke and flames coming from an upstairs window. Inside were her ill husband and four sons. Christine instinctively ran back inside to save her family, but only Christine's husband managed to escape along with their baby son. Christine was killed in the fire along with her sons Mark 4, Stephen 3 and Michael who was just 16 months old. 
The inquest later was to suspect that the elder boys had started the fire themselves by playing with matches and lighter fluid that were on a shelf in the living room. But this was strongly denied by Mr. Dixon. The neighbour, Mrs. Catherine Hartley, also described in horrific detail how she tried to help but saw a ring of fire envelop Christine and how she would take the screams that she heard with her to the grave. In his favoured method, Lee had squirted paraffin through the letterbox and then set matches to ignite it. He was to claim when confessing, I had to go to the Bible after that one. Christine was awarded a posthumous award for bravery and the baby she had saved was raised by her mother. Lee had wiped out an entire family for the simple reason that night that he had tingling in me fingers and a fire in me head. Following this, Lee's next fatal fire was his last, which claimed the lives of the three hasty children. Now, as you can probably imagine, Ronald Sager and his team could scarcely believe what they were hearing. Was this all bravado and confessing for attention, or did they really have, at the time certainly, Britain's worst ever multiple killer sat across from them, a youth of just 19 years old? Sager and his team decided to test Lee's claims. They considered the possibility that Lee may have been a fantasist, but although Lee could not be specific in many dates and times of his fires, he knew exactly where each one had been. His recounts were very down-to-earth and were embellished with detail that only the likely culprit could have known. Sure enough, a check of his story revealed that there had indeed been fires in the locations that he described. So they decided to take him around Hull in a police car, asking him to take them to the locations he described without any prompting. He could do this each time, and to test how much truth there was in the tales that Lee was telling, he was then taken to a location where there had been a fire, but someone else had already confessed to and been convicted of it. Lee strongly denied ever setting a fire at that location, and it was then that Ronald Sager and his team knew Lee was telling the truth. In October 1980, he was charged with 26 counts of murder, various counts of arson, and two counts of grievous bodily harm in the case of the fire that had severely injured Rosabelle Finton and her daughter. Lee was reportedly happy with these charges, and even when a solicitor advised him to recant his confessions, Lee refused to do so, instead dictating a statement where he again accepted all and sole responsibility for the fires and the murders. While he was on remand in prison awaiting trial, Lee would spend his time reading the Bible, where Ronald Sager particularly remembered one visit with him overall. Lee had read him a passage from Matthew 6.24, which said that no man may serve two masters, and that if a man did have two masters, he should be devoted unquestionably to one, but to despise the other. Lee went on to explain to Sager, Fire is my master, I am devoted to fire, and despise people. He went on to claim further that he especially despised people who had a home, something he felt he had never really had. After psychiatrists had examined Lee, it was determined that although he was a pyromaniac and educationally subnormal, he was fit to plead, and he stood trial in Leeds Crown Court in January 1981. Lee pleaded not guilty to 26 charges of murder, but pleaded guilty to 26 counts of manslaughter, 11 counts of arson, and the counts of GBH that he was charged with, all due to diminished responsibility. This was accepted by the Crown, and prosecuting counsel Gerald Coles QC told the court, The sad fact is, is that this is his only real accomplishment in life, and something he had expressed himself as being proud of. 
Sentencingly, Mr Justice Tudor Evans stated that he was a psychopath and an immediate danger to the public. He was ordered to be detained indefinitely in a secure hospital under the Mental Health Act. Following sentence, Lee was taken first to Liverpool's Park Lane Special Hospital, but was then later transferred to Rampton Secure Hospital in Nottinghamshire. He remains incarcerated in a secure hospital to this day. Following Lee's conviction, articles in the Sunday Times newspaper raised questions about the validity of some of his claims, even though he had fully admitted his culpability in a convincing manner. It was suggested that police had used Lee's low intelligence against him and without the presence of a social worker at interview, as would be standard procedure today, that they'd possibly coerced him into confessing to crimes that because of his disabilities he couldn't have had the mobility to have committed. It was also suggested that police had falsified witness statements and just basically lied throughout the entire investigation, something that Ronald Sager strongly denied and actually successfully sued the Sunday Times newspaper for libel for. Now I did find this a bit difficult to comprehend really. What would be the purpose of police lying throughout? None of the fires apart from the Hasty fire was ever classed as arson at the time, so what would be the purpose of fitting someone up to take the blame for all? Why create crimes that were not identified as crimes in the first place? The Wensley Lodge nursing home fire was, however, concluded to have been accidental following a public inquiry in 1983, with much hanging on the belief that Lee would have been unable to have cycled three miles whilst carrying a full can of paraffin with a deformed hand. Yet never underestimate the human determination. I believe this is completely possible here. He was well known for walking the streets at all hours. Who says that he didn't push the bike with one hand whilst carrying paraffin with the other? It's perfectly possible and plausible, I think. But the inquiry wasn't sure. They acknowledged after 13 days having lingering doubts. And as a result, Lee's 11 convictions for manslaughter in this case were quashed. Yet over the years he has never ceased to accept his responsibility for this fire and in the face of his confessions the reasons for the inquiry finding the cause of the fire to be accidental remains unclear. Lord Justice Ackner presiding said on record we are far from satisfied that he did not set Wednesday Lodge on fire. Also following the result of this public inquiry the question was raised then how much reliance could be given to Lee's confessions? Apart from the forensic evidence that supported his confession to the hasty fire, there was little to no physical evidence apart from Lee's confessions in each remaining case, and although he was convincing in his accounts of the fires, there were no witnesses who could place him at the scene at the exact time of each fire. There was also the fact that although Lee claimed he had used paraffin each time, only the hasty fire was suspected from the start as arson. Now Lee was not a sophisticated arsonist, he would just simply squirt paraffin around and light it, would experienced fire investigators have missed evidence of arson in each case, it was argued? Yet this may be harsh criticism. The areas in which Lee set his fires were all classed as poor areas at the time, where open fires were still commonplace in houses. Smoke alarms were nowhere near as commonplace as today, and the furniture in these households was often made from cheap and highly flammable material, as it was back in the time. Plus it was also much more socially acceptable for people to smoke indoors back then. So as a result, house fires were quite commonplace. And when you take this into account, maybe it's easy to see how Lee could hide his crimes, albeit with some luck as well. So he was not in any doubt he was a pyromaniac. Indeed, he told Ronald Sager following his first confessions just how devoted to fire he was. He loved fires, and if there was a fire burning somewhere, Lee would inevitably be there as an onlooker. 
So it's therefore possible that Lee could have learned the dates and locations of the fires he confessed to, which he was indeed vague about the date and chronology of, and he could have elaborated an account of how he caused them. So was it all attention-seeking? And Lee did not necessarily set the fires that he confessed to, and his desire for attention created a fantasy in him where he was responsible for each fire, and he added details to this fantasy until he came to believe it himself, and it therefore sounded plausible. Yet even when his defence team appealed against his convictions because they weren't sure of the validity of his claims, Lee remained adamant that he had been the cause of every fire he confessed to, and these are claims which he adheres to to this day. There's always been a lack of publicity concern in the case, perhaps because there was no high-profile hunt. No one even seemed to know there was a serial arsonist at large in Hull. Also, the convictions were for manslaughter rather than murder, Lee's relative youth and mental health at the time of his conviction must also be taken into context. And perhaps that not only was his trial short because he pleaded guilty, but because it was overshadowed by the arrest of the Yorkshire Ripper in the same month, which took up absolutely every part of the news. Because of these reasons, Lee's often overlooked in any list of Britain's most prolific killers. Had you heard of him before the episode today? So what then do you think were his motives? Well, it can be argued that they were mixed. On one hand, it can be suggested that Lee set fires purely because of his love and fascination for them, and the fact that anyone died in the fires was immaterial. Lee wouldn't have cared if anyone were in the buildings or not. It was just all about the fire. Yet on the other hand, the victims who died in the fires were all unable to flee, either because they were asleep, infirm, or disabled, or physically unable to due to age. Lee had also had clashes with a number of the victims, but they perhaps targeted as a result of a grudge for revenge purposes, or had Lee targeted people who he classed as victims like himself, who he could make into victims and feel power and control for once. Lee was to admit to Ronald Sager that he hated people and that fire is my master, and he especially hated people who had a home because he claimed he'd never really had one. Okay, so yes, that does sound quite true in his case, but so do countless other people who grow up in similar deprived circumstance, and they don't deliberately set out to burn at least 26 people to death and injure countless others, do they? Speculation aside, it remains that for whatever reason, Lee confessed to many fires and was almost proud of his handiwork. It's quite sad to say, and quite mind-boggling, but these fires really were his greatest achievement in life. He evolved as an offender, and he's a rarity amongst most serial arsonists in that he would actually enter the structure that he was burning down to set the fire. From initially carrying a can of petrol around, he evolved and refined his favoured choice of accelerant to start fires to paraffin, making sure he could carry it around in a container that was easily concealable and safer to himself to use as an accelerant. His favoured method was to create a pool of paraffin, then leave a trail leading away from it, and then to make a smaller pool, giving himself time to light it, then get to safety and to be able to observe his handiwork from afar. He was able to avoid detection and suspicion in each case, and although he was considered by people as an odd loner, the type that everybody seems to know at least one of, tragically Lee was never considered by anyone as being potentially dangerous. He was just daft Peter and it seems no one at all suspected there was a serial arsonist at large, let alone think that it was him. Ronald Sager was to write a critically acclaimed book about the case upon his retirement, a book called Hull, Hell and Fire, and he echoed this. 
The whole business was so very, very sad. I look on it as incredible that a coroner and the police should look at this situation of fire after fire after fire and not think whether they could be arson. No one looked at it until it came to the smell of paraffin at the door when I arrived there at the hasty house. Lee was allowed to carry on as if he was above the law. He acted with impunity. He wasn't seen because he was a pathetic, insignificant man. I remember one of his first comments at interview. He said with a touch of boastfulness, I killed a baby once, you know. It was a dreadful state of affairs. I didn't show him sympathy, but I feel sorry for him as a human being. Sorry that in this day and age, you could have a youngster who no one cared for who could be in such a terrible state. Lee's is a name that rarely appears in the press, only appearing twice of note in the years since his incarceration. In 2005, it was reported that he had been allowed to marry another patient in Rampton Hospital where he was being held at the time, a woman named Anne-Marie Davis. He'd met her at a disco that had been organised for the patients, and they had developed a relationship of sorts and eventually been allowed to legally marry. Now this news caused uproar amongst the families of Lee's victims, but they were somewhat appeased when authorities swiftly pointed out that patients, while they were allowed to marry, they're not allowed to consummate the union. What caused considerably more uproar was the report in local and national press in July 2016 that Lee had been allowed out, albeit supervised, on day release into the community surrounding the lower security facility in the home counties that he'd been moved to in 1996. The Sunday Mirror newspaper reported that Lee had been pictured out in the community on day release, laughing and joking with the company and staff, although his face was pixelated out to retain his anonymity. When details of trips like this leak out, there always seems to be a public backlash against this, and there's always an outcry by people who remember too vividly the crimes that the individual is incarcerated for. In recent years, examples of this happening have concerned not just Bruce Lee, but also David McGreevy, Peter Pickering, Glyn Dix and Colin Pitchfork. And they're all names that we've met to date in this series of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. Check them out if you've missed any of the episodes. Ronald Sager, who died a few years ago now, was a supporter of moves such as these. And before he died, he was to say of Lee that he wished one day that he may be freed and allowed to rejoin society to make good on the pre-trial promise that Lee made him of I'll never set fire to another house as long as I live. But it's unlikely that Lee will ever be released to put this promise to the test. He is now in his 37th year of incarceration, having spent nearly his entire adult life in a secure institution. He's arguably institutionalised now, and there is also the small matter of the magnitude of his monstrous crimes and the feeling that they still provoke to this day. The areas in which Lee started his fires were poor areas of Hull, but strong community-spirited areas. People have never forgotten the horrors that Lee inflicted unnoticed during his years of terror. Rosabel Fenton, who was severely injured and suffered a miscarriage in one of Lee's fires, sums up the feeling when discussing Lee potentially being released. I still suffer flashbacks of that night. He ruined me, ruined me for my daughter. She couldn't even look at me and wouldn't let me touch her, claiming, You're not my mummy, where's my mummy? Because I looked so badly burnt. The police always said we'd be kept informed of what was happening with him at every stage, but we've heard nothing about this. He is a danger to society. The thought of him walking about near kids sickens me. He should never be released. And it remains to see whether Lee will or will not ever be released from custody.
Now I've found this case all sorts over the years, tragic, mind-boggling and fascinating all at once. The sheer loss of life due to the repeated actions of one individual is horrific, and these are the self-confessed actions of a psychopath. Yes, one classed with a low IQ and what would be called learning difficulties today, but more than one expert has said about the case that what Lee lacked in intelligence, he made up for in cunning and stealth. He was able to set countless fires, God knows how many over the period of 10 years, from burning a shopping centre down age 9. So many fires that it's likely Lee himself couldn't even remember how many, and yet he was never discovered, suspected, or even seen in the vicinity of any of the fires at the crucial times, apart from the single fire which injured Rosabelle Fenton and her daughter, and then he was only seen. There were no reports of him ever coming to police attention for any offence before his confession to the hasty fire, and then he realised the game was up and he decided to spill all. If he had had any concept of or feelings of guilt, he could hide it well, it didn't cut him up or stop him and his own casual recollections of causing the deaths of so many make for chilling reading. I can only imagine just how they must have been to hear in person. Yet to look at pictures of Lee from the time, it is of course easy to see why people could feel a bit sorry for him, and can understand why he could hide so much in the background. He does come across as a pathetic figure, and he did have what sounds a horrendous childhood. Until you stop and remember that this pathetic figure was one who walked the streets always armed with an accelerant and matches, one who caused thousands upon thousands of pounds worth of damage in his fires, and one who deliberately broke into the homes of vulnerable people, some he knew, some who were strangers, and burned them to death, or set fires knowing there was a likelihood that they would be burned to death. Babies, children, the young and old, all died because of his love of fire. 26 people in total, with countless others severely injured. In my opinion, he was at the time an extremely dangerous psychopathic killer, clearly mentally unwell, and one that I believe is never safe to be allowed to walk the streets again. Because who knows if even after all this time, he has managed to be successfully treated. Who says that his fingers don't still to this day start to tingle? And guys, that has been the case that I've chosen as a finale to the first series of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, be it probably the most infamous and celebrated case to have been featured in the series. A disturbing and memorable one to end on, and still it's a case that's often overlooked. What are your thoughts then on Bruce Lee, or Peter Dinsdale, whatever you want to call him? Is he a fantasist who was happy to exchange the rest of his life in secure incarceration by jumping on the bandwagon and confessing to fires just to gain attention that he'd never had in his life, even if it was out of notoriety? Or is he a disturbed killer with an evil and sadistic streak? And has he now paid any debt to society and should be given the chance of freedom having been rehabilitated and successfully treated? Or should life mean life for him and his crimes are so terrible that this is the punishment warranted and you can never take the chance again? I hope that the episode today raises some talking points. I'm sure that it will do and by all means come on in and discuss in the Facebook discussion group as always. The thread is now there and I'd really love to hear your thoughts on the case. It always makes for interesting reading afterwards. I love reading your opinions on the cases featured so come on and please express yours. And that's it for the first series or season of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. But as I've said, I'm not away for too long. The first episode of season two will be arriving on the 5th of April. So it's more of a short break really for me to recharge, write and research some more. 
Rest assured I will be cracking on with season 2 in the interim and I'll still be about and active as usual on my social media in the mid-season break of course. Plus there will be another Patreon supporters exclusive bonus episode up within that time as well so you can always head on over there in the break also. I hope that you've all enjoyed and I've got to end today with saying a big thank you to all who listened. You guys really are the best and from the bottom of my heart I'm grateful for all the feedback and support that I've had over the series that's got us to here. When I started it I hoped it would but I didn't know just how successful the show would become and that's down to you guys that is. It's been my pleasure to bring you the episodes each week and I look forward to returning in a couple of weeks to do more of the same, some more cases that I've managed to dig out and share. I hope you'll all join me then. Until then, I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast, and I'm wishing you all happy and safe times and I shall speak to you again very soon. Take care guys, thanks for joining me not just today, but throughout the series, and here's hoping that you stay enthusiastic for the next one. I look forward to seeing you then. Goodbye for now.